Welcome to Big Questions. This is Gal Fussman. It's raining. Coronavirus is spreading. And yet, I somehow look for and find beauty in the rain. I'm in my sporty hoodie and doing this podcast. And that makes me feel great. At the beginning of this year, I made it a point to get more out of Big Questions. I wanted it to be more than interviews with successful people who could pass along takeaways for the rest of us. I wanted it to be in sync with the moment. I didn't want to have a long list of recorded interviews to be released on autopilot. I wanted the conversations to deeply matter to the moment, as equally as they did to all who listen. Maybe I should have been careful what I wished for. But I've been very happy over the past few weeks to respond to the coronavirus by putting out conversations that can affect the way we deal with it. And this continues with this episode. A couple of weeks ago, we had advice from the health writer, Aunt Mitzi, on how to prepare. And anybody who paid attention to her was better off for it. Last week, I spoke with executive coach Michael O'Brien on how to neutralize bad moments and how to stop them from turning into a bad day. That was highly relevant and actionable to anyone who's felt bombarded with the nonstop news of the pandemic. This week's episode will be about a very simple concept that I hope will help a lot of people. I didn't realize its massive value until well after the recording was over. It's about asking. My guests are Mark Victor Hansen and his wife, Crystal Dwyer Hansen. Mark and his partner, Jack Canfield, created the Chicken Soup for the Soul Empire that has sold half a billion books. At the end of April, Mark and Crystal have a book coming out called Ask. Though it won't be out for another six weeks, the message behind asking that's conveyed in this conversation may be very important to people who are affected by the coronavirus or its financial impact, as well as people who are looking at other obstacles in their lives. There are a great many people whose businesses are being impacted by the coronavirus. I'm right at the center of them. I make the bulk of my living by keynoting at live corporate events and conferences. Nearly all the events that I booked over the next few months have been canceled, Not only that, but even events six months down the road have been called off because of the projected fallout. That means that all the people who were scheduled to handle the audio for those events also lost work. Airline tickets that were booked by the people who were scheduled to fly into those events will no longer be used. Hotels that were booked to house the people flying into those meetings now have empty rooms. Restaurants that would have served those groups will not have those diners. Waitresses and waiters will not receive those tips and pass along a portion to the busters who clean the tables. Uber and Lyft drivers will not be called to bring diners from those restaurants back to the hotels. The restaurant suppliers will be hit and the cycle will go on and on and on because the people who are earning money through these transactions will have less of it to support other businesses. When you magnify that by the entire tourism industry and huge events that include the National Basketball Association, NCAA Tournament, National Hockey League, Major League Baseball, the Masters Golf Tournament, 
you begin to see the monumental impact on the economy. Well, we can all sit around and try to wait things out and hope that at the end of flu season, the virus subsides, that crowds gather and rejoice once again. But I smell something else in the air. I believe this is the time to ask ourselves how we might pivot, how we might take our lives to a new place, a place that gets us through these difficult times, or even a place that is better than where we are now. My conversation with Mark and Crystal reveals the obstacles that block us from asking those kinds of questions and also block us from asking questions of others who could help us get to that new place. Asking requires some vulnerability, but I've never had a problem being vulnerable, so I'm going to set an example here. Fortunately, I'm at work on a book over the next month or two, but I have no idea where things will go after that. I specialize in storytelling. Perhaps there are people out there who want to use the time going forward to focus or reshape their stories, and maybe they'd be really happy for me to help them. If I didn't let them know that I might be available, how would they know? If I don't ask, how can anything happen? We can all look to do this in our own way. Asking means being proactive. I encourage all of you to think of a way that you can get the best out of your tomorrows by making an ask of someone in a way that will be good for them. If this message motivates one person and leads to a positive place, I'll feel fulfilled. I would not have this podcast if Tim Ferriss didn't ask me to come on his. I would not have Sportique as a sponsor if we didn't ask each other if it'd be a good fit. And nothing feels more comfortable to me now than a pair of Sportique sweatpants. That's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E dot com. This is not a time to sit back and feel out of control as the virus spreads. This is a time to ask how we can get more out of our lives because we've been given the opportunity to reflect and think about the best place we can go moving forward. Thanks again for listening. If you're looking to have your story told or your business's story told in the future, feel free to reach out to me at calfussman.com and we'll see what might be possible. And if you reach out to somebody with your own ask that takes your life to a better place, please let me know. Let's get straight to Mark Victor Hansen and Crystal Dwyer Hansen. We recorded this conversation over the internet. And thanks to my audio engineer, Luz Fleming, for getting the most out of it. Everyone here at Big Questions is doing our best to step up to the moment. We're turning the ask on the couple that wrote the ask book. Why did you write a book with a title called Ask? Go ahead, Crystal. <laughs> Ladies first. Okay, so Cal, we're blessed to meet so many cool people in this world, and uh, so many of them smart, talented, interesting, likable, all of these things. But then we started to notice specifically that a lot of these people it's almost like there are two groups of people, all of them smart, all of them likable, talented, educated even. Um, but we noticed that there was this group that 
are kind of like the super achievers getting what they want in life. And then there's this group that has, you know, essentially very similar qualities that are not getting what they want. And so we would talk about this. Mark and I always do a prayer meditation thing every morning together. And we started, we were, you know, talking specifically about this one guy. We're like, you know, this guy should be in TV. He should be in film. He's so talented. He's so brilliant. But he's barely making it, you know. And just so many people like that. And then we, so we started really discussing it. And what it comes down to is we we felt like is the ability to ask. Um, a lot of people just have never learned or never been mentored by someone to be comfortable asking. And um, so we started diving deeper into that and um, doing a lot of research. And for us, it came down to three areas of asking. Did we say there are three areas through which to ask? And that is ask yourself, ask others, and ask God. And so, yeah, that's where it, that's where the idea started. Wow. So people are not even asking themselves for what they really want? Right, right, exactly. Because what we found is so many people are stuck. And you probably see this too. People are stuck. And and as we do these podcasts even, we're, you know, we're finding out a lot of people are discussing like some podcasts are about really talking about, you know, the low points in one's life and how to get out of them. And when you're at a low point or when you're stuck in life, the best thing to do is just start asking yourself questions. That's you know. why we put the subtitle on it from your dreams to your destiny because we think intrinsic and I'd love to hear what you got to say about that into each and every one of us we all have a destiny. Do you agree with that position? I believe very much so. I knew what I was going to be when I was seven years old but I'm told that I am one of the Five percent of people who have that realization. Uh, well, that's why it comes back to asking, because you got to ask yourself, "What is my destiny?" Or if you go to the third part that Crystal got, "What is God's destiny for me?" And we think, no matter what your spiritual belief, whether it's Christian or Jewish or Hindu or whatever, you know, everyone has a divine destiny. And and if you go to bed, like when we're doing chicken soup, we wanted a mega best-selling title, so Jack and I did. Is, is we understood what's called a thought command by psychiatrist uh, Eric Erickson. And what it, we, 400 times we said, mega best-selling title, mega best-selling title, mega best-selling title. At 4.30 in the morning, Jack calls me from his home to my home, wakes up everybody and says, chicken soup. And I said, for the soul. And we both got goosebumps. And then 144 publisher said, that doesn't work. And now we sold a half billion books, so I sort of think it worked. <laughs> Now, d did you know when you said for the soul, did you immediately know there it is? That's it. Both of us got goosebumps. And, uh, you know, each of us has our own corroboration of truth. We have we had seven paradigms in chicken soup. But one is any one of our stories has got to cause instantaneous behavioral change. It's got to cause happy tears. It's got to have you feel yourself in your stomach. It's got to cause goosebumps, chili bumps, or God bumps, you know, those kind of things. So... The answer is we intrinsically knew, because I'm the one who taught Jack to do uh, short, punchy stories that we'd sell at the end of our seminars and sell more books and tapes and videos than anybody. And there were only two or three of us out at the time, but Zig Ziglar, myself, Cabot Robert, and then ultimately Tony Robbins. 
Well, you know, let, let's take this back to the start. Did you all know where you're going to be when you were both seven? <laughs> oh, I love that question. I Go love ahead. it. Um, Mark was probably more clear about what he was going to be because he was born to, but I'll let him talk about that. I didn't know. Um, I was just a very sensitive child. And so I, I think my sensitivity led me on the right path. Um, you know, I, I was very intuitive, even as a child. And um, Where'd you grow up, Crystal? I grew up in Idaho. So I was raised with a family. I'm one of nine children. Um, same two parents. Um, and my mother was just this amazing wonder. She actually had a grand mal seizure with me when I was born, and, uh, when she was pregnant with me, and went to this neurologist, and he tried to give her this medication. And my grandmother said, don't you dare take those pills. I'm going to take you to this naturopathic, chiropractic doctor. And uh, he gave her like some chiropractic adjustments and get some herbs. Fast forward, I'm born strong and healthy. And fast forward again, I'm eight years old at my dance class and I come home from dance lessons and I say, mom, Miss Gossman has a boy and he can't talk and, and his mouth just hangs open and he, and he gets home later on this little bus and, and she said, he's my age. How can he be my age? He doesn't even know how to talk. And she proceeded to tell me that at the same time, she was sent to the neurologist for her grand mal seizure. Miss Gossman was also in that office, pregnant with a child, this boy who was exactly my age, and they were both given the same pills. She took hers, and so there's no proof. We, you know, that that's what happened with him. But I will say that I'm very thankful that my mom chose the path she did, and this naturopathic doctor became our family practice doctor. Um, so I was raised in a very unusual way. We had these gigantic organic gardens before it was chic. And we did juice cleanses before that was cool and chic, you know, and uh, I'm just so thankful uh, that my mom taught me those amazing things. And it shaped my life so much because, you know, I'm a health and wellness coach and nutritionist and, and uh, it's such an important part of my life. Wow. So you knew that you wanted to give forth the gift of wellness. Yes. I mean, I don't even know that I knew. It was so intrinsic to who I was. It's like, I, I know so much about nutrition because I was weaned on learning that greens were alkalizing and that white flour and ripe, white bread were a complete no-no because it causes your pancreas to overwork and create far too much insulin. And that's what leads to diabetes. I mean, these are things that I knew when I was 10 and it's just truly a part of who I am. And, and I'm so thankful for that. I have fantastic health. I've raised my kids that way. I mean, it, that kind of health is a great blessing and it's such a, I love helping others. That's why I wrote my book, Skinny Life, Skinny Life, the real skinny on fit, slim and healthy is my website. And then uh, I have a book called Skinny Life, the secret to physical, emotional, and spiritual fitness. But the other part of that, Cal, I think I was raised, you know, around a lot of spiritual people. So, and I was very intuitive. So I loved helping people. I felt like when someone needed help, when they were suffering, I could sort of feel them a little bit and I would always want to help. And so then when I grew up, you know, I went on and I was in the real estate industry and, and doing some modeling and throughout my entire life, I have always helped people. I mean, I would be selling a house and I'd be writing a life plan for someone because they suddenly had opened up about a problem they had. 
And I would, you know, they'd say, I, can you write that down? I, I can't, I don't know that I can remember to say all that or do all that. Wow. <laughs> all, all I can say is where were you when I was getting out that white bread and putting peanut butter and fluffernutter on it? <laughs> Man, the stuff that I ate. <laughs> and so how did you meet Mark? Well, you know what? I have to give my mom credit for that. My mom, that, that woman is really quite intuitive herself. So I had a coaching, I had my, I'm a, you know, certified transformational coach and a, a clinical hypnotherapist. And I had this practice in Scottsdale and um, had just recently been divorced. And my mom got an email of all things. I had started writing a book about these amazing transformations that my clients were having. I mean, really cool stuff. And she said, Crystal, I just got this, you know, this author 101 uh, email. And uh, she's like, and there'll be, you know, publishers and publicists there. And she goes, and Mark Victor Hansen will be there. And I was like, oh, woo, mom. And she goes, no, seriously, you have to go. And I said, okay, when is it? I'm really busy right now. She goes, you have to get your book out there. And I said, she goes, well, it's, it's in a day and a half. And I go, mom, it's going to be sold out. I, 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 I'm, I'm like talking her out of it. And she goes, just call, call right now. So I called the promoter, literally, he calls me back personally within five minutes. And I go, this is weird. I mean, you think like an assistant would call me back or something. He goes, Crystal, we'd love to have you with the event. It's not sold out. Come over. So I said, okay, I guess I'm going to LA. I lived in Scottsdale at the time. And a day and a half later, I'm at the VIP room and I'm talking to a speaking coach and Mark was the keynote at this event. And, and uh, he was over, you know, across the room, surrounded by a little entourage of people wanting to get to him. And I'm talking to the speaking coach and suddenly this woman, like her hands, she's talking with her hands and she whacks a whole glass, an entire glass of red wine on my white pants. And it's like, it just jumped on one leg of my white pants. Like, oh. And Mark must've been looking my way. Indeed. <laughs> Literally You've seen her picture, right, Cal? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to just listen to the story here. So he breaks out of his crowd, Cal. He kind of, it was like surreal. He breaks out of his crowd, comes walking over to me, reaches out, grabs my hand, starts pulling me toward him and says, I'm so sorry that happened. I think I know where the club soda is. Let me help you. And he kind of told me. I, now that's a line. <laughs> I jaw dropped and I, what could I do but follow him out of the room <laughs> to go get club soda and once he had me out of the room he just said you know tell me about you what do you do and so we started chatting he said there's something about you he said there are a lot of people here you know may never get their message to the world but I feel like you would be such a powerhouse for women I'm starving have you eaten um I'd love to talk more and I said as a matter of fact I haven't had dinner but let me run upstairs and change these white pants. <laughs> and uh, the funny thing is, is I ran up to my room and I call my mom. I go, mom, I got to hurry. But you know, how are the kids doing? And she's like, they're great. And I said, because I'm, I'm going to dinner with Mark Victor Hansen. And she goes, I knew it. <laughs> I was like, mom, what did you know that I didn't know? <laughs> wow. Did this idea of transformation, when you have that overlap, does it make life easier? Uh, do you always have something new to talk about every day? Is something being transformed in front of you all the time? Neither of us are ever bored for one nanosecond. I can tell that unequivocally. And we have, since we started talking, we never stopped. And after 
I invited her out to dinner. We went to a Hollywood restaurant that was packed with people. And I thought, oh boy, $100 bill will not get me through this. So we go up to the thing and because asking fits so perfectly here, um, the guy says, okay, because she is spectacularly beautiful and has this wonderful auric energy that just emanates out of the core of her being and says, okay, I give up. Who is she? I said, I'm a salesman. So I said, you don't recognize her? And now the guy's in a quandary. He doesn't know exactly what to do because it's a quixotic position. And he says, okay, I give up. Who is she? I said, now I'm joking, but I said, she's a queen of Denmark. <laughs> oh, man. That's two great lines in the same day. Club soda and the queen of Denmark. <laughs> so he said, who are you? I said, well, it's obvious. Who travels with the queen? And in 30 seconds, we had the houndstooth uh, pants Chef uh, Supar coming to our table and saying, What do you want? And she said, Are we going to tell him? And I said, I don't think that's a good idea to tell him right now. We're just going to enjoy this evening. It's the king of Denmark. That's beautiful. Oh, man. It didn't hurt anyone. <laughs> it was just funny. Just joking. And, and suddenly it was like, Oh, wow. Okay, here we are. Let's, let's roll with it. <laughs> and, and then that's what we're trying to teach everyone that they can have a life full of fulfillment and fulfillment if they learn that asking is the most profound skill. I mean, it's obvious your website uses it and alludes to it as, you know, you're Mr. Question. Yes. And, and we believe everyone's got to learn from the likes of the three of us. Well, what do you recommend to people who have trouble thinking of questions? So if someone's having trouble personally, Cal, the best thing is just to sit down with yourself in a quiet space and start questioning yourself. Like, what am I feeling right now? What is triggering the worst feelings I'm feeling? If I'm not having success, um, it, you know, what is the reason? Is this something I really want to do? Is there something I'm missing here? Am I in alignment um, with my goals and dreams? Do I feel worthy of my goals and dreams? And when you start asking those questions and answering them for yourself, you'll come to a lot of truth that you may have been avoiding. And that's the whole idea of asking yourself is to get to your deep inner truth so you can clear out all the garbage. What, what my work is about, I call it mind excavation. Because we all have, we're carrying around a whole bunch of garbage. We got, we, we've been filled with garbage our whole lives. We've been, you know, everything, our social norms, our families, our interactions, all these negative experiences. And they really do get stored at the subconscious level. And so at some point, a lot of people just try to keep powering through and pushing over these. But at some point, it really benefits you to stop and dig deep and start asking those questions that take you on the inner journey to figure out what is troubling me? Am I in alignment? Is this really what I want? Do I feel worthy? Do people, excuse, excuse me, your highness, <laughs> do people need to write down the answers to those questions or can they just come up with them in their head? I mean, both are helpful. You're, you, you know, you're going to benefit either way, but writing those questions and answers down, because then you can look back and reread and start to reflect and say, you know, um, okay, this is what this revealed. Maybe I do feel this inadequacy. Uh, you know, did something happen in your life 
that triggered these feelings of unworthiness? And are you willing to look at that? Are you willing to release that? Are you, you know, are you willing to understand that's an experience that is not your identity? And that's part of the work that I teach is like, you are not, you don't identify with your experiences or your emotions. They're just experiences in the journey. They are not you and you are separate from those things. And the smartest man in Greece, the oracle, is Socrates, and he said the unexamined life isn't worth living. And then all spiritual literature basically says, write a thing, make it clear, and it will be established on you, meaning you've got to answer those questions. You've got to put them in right. And, and what our position is is that everyone needs to have a purpose. And one of the wonderful interviews, like you know, we did 26 interviews in this book. We wrote all of it, and all of a sudden we said, well, we have all these wondrous people that are the master askers of all time, and this guy – had two jets, he had four motorcycles, he had homes all over the world, and he was really unhappy. And he went to his best friend in business, and he says, I'm unhappy. And the guy's question, his question was, do you know what makes you happy? And he said, I never thought about that, so I guess I should write it down. But the bottom line is, happiness comes out of having a personal sense of purpose towards something that's worthwhile to you. And that's why everyone's got to put their purpose in writing because we're all instant forgetters and, and we don't remember our purpose and what we're passionate about and dedicated to. But, you know, you hear these stories of people who have accomplished great things, have attained great wealth, and for some reason come up empty-handed in the happiness department. Is that an isolated case or do you find a lot of people in that situation? We see that a lot, Cal. And that's why we wrote to several areas in the book. We said asking in relationships, you know, asking for your health and wellness, asking for in your career and asking um, spiritual asking, which is really about asking in your, for your higher purpose, because you're right. Money doesn't make you happy. It makes you more of who you are. If you're not a very happy person, you could actually become less happy, get, you know, the more money you make. So that's, that's just such an important thing to remember. I mean, we need to be balanced as human beings. If, we're, if we don't have any sense of connection to something greater than ourselves, that's kind of empty because the universe is big and vast and mysterious and all things are connected. And so if we've never spent any time wondering how we're connected to others, you know, to all life and and to eternity, basically. Is it hard for many people to look somebody in the eye and ask them a question? And, and I ask that because I've never been in that situation. Uh, generally, if I'm curious about something, it's natural to me to just look them in the eye and ask. But I'm very curious to know if a lot of people that you met don't feel comfortable looking somebody in the eye and asking them a question. The answer is 100% yes. And what we did is we wrote seven roadblocks that uh, defeat just about everybody. And, and what we do is talk about the ways over them. And let me just give you one classic story that I adore. There's a wonderful guy named Jim Stowell. He's becoming an NFL superstar. He's practiced in high school. He's ready. He's chosen. And they send him in for the physical, and they find out. The doctor said, look, kid, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you're going to be dead blind permanently for the rest of your life in six months' time. Well, that just devastated him. He's living in a 9 by 12 room 
self-incarcerated with a telephone, a radio, and a television. He used to love to watch thriller movies and couldn't see them. He couldn't see when the guy threw a right hook or when a tire squealed away. So his parents say, look, Jim, you've got to go and be at the blind meeting and see if they can give you some help. He goes to a blind meeting and all they're doing is lamenting their blindness and complaining. And he said, I understand that. I've got that way. So he sits next to a woman and she ended up asking the pivotal question that changed his life. And the question was, he says, you know, somebody ought to do something about that so we can see what's happening. And she said, look, we're somebody, let us do it. And she was a blind uh, legal secretary and said, let us do it. And they started an organization called uh, Narrative Television. Well, today, because you and I are sighted, we wouldn't know about it, but 14 million people pay $10 a month. It was here before Netflix. It was here before why, you know, YouTube it was here before all that. And then he did so well, Charlie Tremendous Jones in the old days wrote me a letter and said, you know, I know you're selling 15 million books a year, Mark, of your chicken soup series, but you've got to read this book. It's the most important book ever. And uh, I thought, oh, gosh, Charlie, I'd love to read it and write this guy's forward. But I also now read Jim Stobel's book. And it so wowed me. I wrote that this ought to be a uh, picture book, and it's called The Ultimate Gift. And the book ended uh, up movie. a movie. <laughs> and the movie made $100 million. And Jim's last line in the story we wrote about him is, I now write books that I can't read. And I make movies that I can't see. Wow. He is the wisest man I've never met on a telephone and we're probably chatting a couple times a month and it just is amazing because I just haven't been to his home in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But yeah, like a pivotal, that pivotal question when he looked at this one woman and said, you know, was complaining. He's like, why hasn't anyone done something about this? And she said, why can't that someone be us? And it just he just catapulted out of his absolute misery into the stratosphere. So it's amazing how one question, you know, answering one question can change everything. It's paradigm changing. From tragedy to triumph. And, and I think that's true for everyone. And I think we're going through the most soul searching, painful time potentially for everyone. And more people are going to be able to come out ahead if they learn the principles of asking from, you know, our book and from your podcast. When I'm processing that story, is it seemed like a very natural reaction. It's it, it, something was twisting in his stomach, and it just blurted out. How how often are those pivotal questions uh, questions that just arrive in a finger snap out of nowhere? I think all the time, and I think that remember we said you got to ask yourself, ask others, and ask God. In, in my own case. You know, at 1974 in August, I went bankrupt and it was interest rates were at 28% crazy time and oil embargo. And I was building out plastic in New York City. I built the Wall Street Racket Club, botanical gardens, aviaries, rooftop structures. And all of a sudden I couldn't get any product because I was using PVC, polyvinyl chloride, petrochemicals. And I'm bankrupt for six months and one. I thought, oh my gosh, my self-worth and my net worth are the same. I now know they're totally separate. If you're listening your self-worth has got to stay intact no matter whether your net worth is up, down, or upside down. And But I didn't know that. And I started listening to a tape, and I said, well, what do I really want to do? And I said, I want to talk to people that care about things that matter that would make a life-changing difference. I start by speaking. People said, do you have it in a book? I created self-published books at first, Stand Up, Speak on Win with a lovely guy named Keith DeGreen. I got the other authors, so I knew the process. And the first year I sold 
20,000 books at $10 each. So I walked away with $200,000. I thought I had died and gone to heaven. I was in my ideal life livelihood. <laughs> obviously, I stayed there. <laughs> what was it like the moment that you went bankrupt? I know you, what you're just saying about separating your self-worth and your net worth. What questions do you ask yourself when you're in that situation? Well, I, I was so broke so fast. And it was, they, and back in the old days, the East Court in Long Island, New York took away everything. Anyhow, I'm a good library visitor, right? And had a library card. So I went and said, how do you go bankrupt? So I checked a book out of the library, literally, how to go bankrupt by yourself. <laughs> and, and luck. Oh, man. <laughs> how to go bankrupt by yourself. Okay. Because I went to the court, and when I went to court, some ambulance-chasing lawyer is out there saying, buddy, for $300, I'll take you bankrupt. I said, pal, if I had $300, I wouldn't be going bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was below scratch. That wow. cliche, you know, I had, was so low, I had to reach up to touch bottom. And I was, I was at the bottom of my emotional self-esteem. And then, God bless... You know, I, I had that one tape. I'd sold my way through college, as I think you know, by reading my literature. And, and I had one audio tape. I was too cocky, sophomoric. I knew everything. I didn't need to listen. Now I'm bankrupt. And I had a tape recorder, so I listened to it. And I thought, oh, my God. It's called, are you the creature? You're either the creature, circumstance, or the creator. I said, if I created it, that intuitively means I can uncreate it and recreate it. And I had a good education. And that's what happens with a lot of your listeners. And, and I'm talking from heart to heart, soul to soul here. All of us get bummed out. All of us get beat up. All of us get spit out. And I'm, I'm just, I don't know your story well enough, Cal. I mean, we love listening to your podcast, but you have been beat up and spit out a few times. I'll bet on it. Oh, man, I've been on many a roller coaster. <laughs> By the way, notice that we laugh at that now, but when you're going through the tortures of the damned and through the fiery hoops, and your whole world's on fire. It doesn't feel that way, does right. it? Yeah, it's uh, Larry King uh, has an expression. Foxhole humor isn't very funny when you're in the foxhole. But years later, you can look back and laugh and, and tell the funny story. That's what they say about atheists, too. And I was in Vietnam. There's no atheists in a foxhole. And, you know, if you think your life's over, you start to change some of your attitudes and thinking. So these pivotal questions often coming at the spur of the moment, you hear something that triggers a transformation inside you and out comes the question, are there other pivotal questions that come after long deliberation or is it, is it mostly a moment that brings it out of you? Well, it's, it's so different for everyone, um, Cal, but I will say, okay, so let me give you a great story. One of the reasons we need to get rid of these these roadblocks that we have, you know, unworthiness, doubt, all the excuses, all of these things, these seven roadblocks to asking, Mark, Mark and I call them in the book, is because it can really devastate our lives. If we don't, it, it can really change the outcome of our lives if we don't get over these roadblocks. So we have, we interviewed a woman who's just an incredible human being. Her name's Rita Davenport. She was a news reporter. She had her own show. She's very popular in Phoenix, Arizona broadcast journalist. She's just really cool woman. And they gave her after, after being a broadcast journalist, she, she was able to work up and she talked him into doing her own cooking show. The cooking show became incredibly popular. She had all of the most famous chefs. She had Wolfgang Puck and um, Julia Childs. And she was even told that the other, the manager of the yeah. other station basically would, would shut his door, 
lock himself in. You couldn't talk to him when her show was on. He was obsessed with her show. So she had this fantastic idea. She said, I think we could create an entire food network. I have the ideas. I know how to make this work. So she took it to the corporation, the corporate head who owned the station at the time and, you know, laid out the ideas, told him all the reasons it would work. Hers was one of the most popular shows. And he looked at her and said, Rita, your show is the top show. I love it, but this will never work. Who would ever want to watch food shows, cooking shows all day long? So she shut down. She, you know, her self-esteem wasn't what it is today. And she said, because he said no, the first time I asked, I didn't bring it up again. I never raised it again. Well, the rest is history. The guy that was the station head of her opposing station took that idea. He is the guy who started the Food Network. And he admits it to this day. I mean, they've been together at, you know, black tie parties and things like this. And she goes up to him and says, hey, you know, you took my idea. And he goes, I know I did, Rita. He goes, but but you didn't do it. Oh, and um, man. she said the least you could do was, you know, share a little little of the love with me because by the time he sold it um, to somebody else, and I don't remember who bought it, so he sold it for $3 billion. Now it's worth far more than that. So what a lesson in terms of, you know, when you have something that's in your heart and mind that is your signature that you believe in and that, that you just know is going to work, don't stop asking. Just because someone tells you no doesn't mean they're right. In fact, they're probably wrong. Um, and in Rita's case, that was definitely proven out. But that's proven out again and again, how we're finding that. And Mark has one of the best stories about, you know, being told no and never giving up. He just didn't stop asking. He's a resilient, he's a bold, resilient asker because he was turned down by 144 publishers for the Chicken Soup for the Soul series. And they all told him, this is, a, this is a dumb idea. No one will ever read these happy little stories. No one wants this. No one wants multi-authored books. Well, I guess they did. 500 million books later, good thing he didn't stop asking, right? Well, you know what? That brings up a good question. What was it like going through that process of rejection from the first no to the 10th to the 20th to the 50th to 144? Do you go through a an arc as the rejections increase? Do you become more determined? Do you get put off at times? What is the process like? By the way, I've never heard it asked that way before, so thank you. The first couple were a surprise because we were sure. I mean, you know, Jack third in his class at Harvard. We got standing ovations for these stories, whether we were talking at Pendleton Military Base, we're talking to the Defense Department, we're talking to scientists or whatever, because life is a story. And everyone said, oh, man, that story about Bopsy or that story about the puppies for sale just touched my heart. And I really want to share with my brother and my sister, my uncle, my aunt, can we have it in a book? And none of them could see what Jack and I were feeling every day. So we finally got a little published. Well, first of all, we got mounds of rejection letters. They call them pink slips, as you know, in the book business. And our, our former wives now, uh, you know, said, that is not going to make it. So why don't you guys just go back to work? Well, you know, as they divorced us, they were really thankful that we'd uh, made bundles of money. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> And, and, but going through the process, they, there were a lot of people resisting that 
and it was painful. So Jack and I just confided in each other, mastermind it is called, where two minds joined together and had the power of 11. And we knew that we were going to go through every obstacle. We we're going to find somebody. So ultimately, we went to ABA, the old name, American Bookseller, and there's 60,000 people in the business. We had backpacks. Both of us carried, the, you know, three ring binders of books. Still getting rejected, but by this time our agent had fired us. Our agent cost them fifteen million dollars. You know, said, uh, "Hey boys, this isn't working, so I'm going to fire you." That's pretty close to what he said, and sorry did that. As is ahead of Time Warner and everybody else that didn't take us, and so we would go to a little publisher that we didn't know was bankrupt. There were seventeen million dollars upside down. The guy said, "Look, buddy." We'll distribute it, but you guys got to sell 20,000 copies at $6 each. Well, that's, you know, 180,000. And then we had to pay that much for publicity that we had to pay for. We didn't know we brought them back from the brink and made them worth $2 billion, which was, you know, tragically expensive for us, but just absolutely worth it in the long run. And, you know, that's why I'll do one line from a guy I knew really well, uh, Paul J. Myers, a billionaire, said, whatever you vividly imagine, ardently desire and enthusiastically act upon must inevitably come to pass. And I, we just, we believe that so much that, we, you know, we made the invisible visible for what we saw that it was going to be a New York Times bestseller. When, when you got to a hundred rejections, that like, did you throw some kind of party and soldier on or I, I'm just curious, like, being like slapped down again and again and again. How do you keep trying? I think it's two things. Number one is I sold since I was nine years old. So, I, and I was a number one greeting card salesman for American greeting card. Then 40 years later, when I'm becoming the biggest licensing guy ever in books, they came and we ended up, I wrote all the greeting cards for them. They're second biggest to, uh, to uh, Hallmark, of course, and, and we sold 897,000 boxes of Christmas cards, mostly at grocery stores that had our names on it. Um, I, I don't think we knew, other. so that was number one. Number two is that what happened is we were both listening to inspirational educational tapes that do what Zig Ziglar called the checkup for the neck up. So we were buoying ourselves up and then we buoyed each other up, even though you know, Jack and I could probably only get two full days of work together a week because we were out speaking. He was uh, speaking to the educators and I was speaking uh, to business audiences, some churches and chiropractors around the world. And But the stories were so good. I mean, we rated them on a scale of one to 10 and we knew that they worked because the audience gave a standing ovation and said, I got to have it, I got to have it. And we didn't have it as a book. And, and we thought, well, if, if after B, ABA, if nobody buys us after the Bookseller Association, We'd self-publish, and maybe we should have gotten turned down one more time. <laughs> wow. You know, that reminds me of a story that Gloria Estefan told me about the song Conga, which was a huge hit. Uh, and they're going out, Miami Sound Machine, and playing this song at concerts, and people are going wild. And yet their own music company was saying, ah, that's not your single. Uh, and they basically had to figure out a way to move the public, to move the company. Is there something that we should be looking for when, when we're trying to transform uh, something in, in the eyes of the audience that tell us, keep going, the people who are saying, no, they're just thinking about their own situation, they're not thinking about mine. 
Right. I mean, I think I think when you're you're setting out to do something that you really love, I think imagination is is a big part of it. I mean, the nexus of it, because I think for Mark and probably for Gloria, they imagined, you know, they put a lot of imagination into what they were creating. And and when you really imagine deeply, the best way to imagine is this amazing outcome. And so that you see it clearly. And I think that helps you really hold tight to your dream and don't give up on your own imagination because these others come in and have their opinions and they're not always right. But if you, if you imagine that outcome, it's amazing how powerful that is. It gives it a different energy and a different life. And when you use your imagination, you put so much more passion. It's almost like it becomes more attractive, just like the conga, you know, it was irresistible. And those, these stories were irresistible because they were done with imagination and passion. And so those become like big attractor fields, really. Why don't people use stories more often? I, I often see people doing PowerPoints and they're so focused on numbers. And I just look up and say, you're making it so dry. All you got to do is just convert those numbers into a little story. It's going to perk the whole audience up. But so often I just keep watching and watching and it never happens. I believe exactly what you believe because I've watched you on video on YouTube. And that is you tell a story and then you unwrap it and make the point. Most guys that are amateur hour tell the point and then tell the point, and then tell the point. Never tell a story. And people remember stories. They don't remember points. And the other thing I'd say as a professional speaker that's been exceedingly successful, at least in the eyes of, I'm rated as one of the top 10 in the world, is that never make more than three points in a half hour, hour talk, because that's all people can really retain. And they will remember the story and go home and tell it as best they can to their wife or kids if it really matters to them. Exactly. And if you think about how the brain really works. I mean, the brain, our brain learns through patterns. We, we, you know, it becomes patterned. So stories are metaphors, the metaphors are patterns. And so if you really want deep learning and you want assimilation of what the principles you're trying to teach, a story is so much more powerful because it's tied and it's tied to emotion. So these emotions create more chemistry. They literally create chemistry in your brain that cascades through your body. When you feel emotions, that's what happens. Those brain chemicals, those emotional chemicals fill our body. So the, the learning is so much more powerful. So your point is, is really spot on, Hal. Well, when, when, you, when you have that story, you have that imagination, and you know you can take it to a good place, and you do ask, or maybe this is another thing, quite often people have intermediaries asking for them. Is that a good thing? Or are you better asking your own question? Or is sometimes people have agents doing the ask? I, I think both work in different situations, but I think everybody's got to learn how to be a prime asker because you've got to be a prime asker to get your agent to ask for the right uh, Good, good point. Yeah. We have four or five agents in different parts of our life right now. And even somebody called us today that wants to agent one of the movies that we've written in. And it's, it's really nice, but I have real clear what I want before I'm willing to sign a movie contract. And it's going to have to have a light of day. Otherwise, I'm not interested in doing it. I mean, you know, because what they do, you know the movie industry because you live in the Hollywood area. 
that that they sign something and say, well, we'll release it when we release it. Well, that that's nice. Other than when there's a problem like coronavirus, you want to make sure it gets released within the next two years so you can see the residuals and the cash flow. You don't want it to be like Frank Elbaum. I had the same estate attorney as he had, the guy who did Wizard Was it a Vaz, right? He never made any money during his lifetime, and now posthumously because of the movie, he, his estate makes 150 million a year. Well, guess what? That's not like a good payoff for me, or you, or us, or any of your listeners. So it it, it sounds like it really comes down to first off asking the question of like who's the best agent for me, and then figuring out to add, how to ask that agent if they'll represent your project. So it, it actually seems like it's a flurry of questions that take you to where you want to go. Absolutely. And a flurry of questions, back to what Crystal was teaching earlier, have to be written out and you got to simulate them because you're going to be in, in the question they asking mode and you're only going to get one shot at any of the good agents and you're, you know, Let's just pick books because every I got a book coming out in October called You Have a Book in You, and then we got a second one right behind it called Speed Write Your Autobiography because in 90 days, 22 minutes a day. And I think everybody needs to write their autobiography. I mean, wouldn't you like to know what your great-great-grandfather said, did, ate, felt, thought about government or whatever, and whatever country or wherever they lived? I At least I would, and I think everybody would. Being the DNA, RNA, 23andMe testing and Ancestry.com are going nuts, I happen to think that that really works. Well, that is, that is a great point. You just heightened uh, biographies for me uh, because, you know, I always, uh, quite often I've been asked, like, if you could go back in time, who would you like to meet? And in fact, I ask that question quite a bit. And... I often wonder if I did go back, if what it would be like to look upon my great, 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 great grandfather or, mother, or grandmother, just to see from whence I came. And it would be fascinating if you really had the biographies of all those people, seeing how they all added up to who you are. By the way, we were talking to Aunt Mitzi, uh, as you know, I introduced you to her, and Aunt Mitzi has them back 1515 generations because, you know, no. shared in the hotel. And before that, they were obviously wise, eclectic, and smart enough to write this stuff. Now, I'm sorry to say that my own family was not that, and hopefully Crystal and I are changing that for all of our future progeny uh, onward, and they will know exactly what grandma and grandpa and great, 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 great grandma and grandpa felt, thought, did, and who we talked to, like Cal Flissman. Cal, what did he do? <laughs> yeah, um, my aunts have been wonderful at uh, doing a very deep dive into our family genealogy, and it's so fascinating to see where you came from, what 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 those people before you did, and, and uh, there's a character, a woman, Catherine of Seton, who was married to King Edward, the third, and they are um, our direct ancestors. And so there's actually a book about Catherine of Seton, which was so interesting. It was so fun for my sister and I to find that. But when when Melissa, my sister, picked up the book, she said, you know, when you read this, you're going to see a little bit of us in this woman. She was so strong. She was independent. She was, you know, and it's just, it is such a gift to know that. So like you're saying, if you can get everybody to write 
a book on their life. What a treasure. And let me, can I add one more thing, Cal? And that is that when you write, you have a tendency to read more. I mean, the first, what is the first thing you said after I said we were doing this book on how to write your own autobiography called Speed Write Your Life Story Autobiography? And, and what the first thing you said is, I had to read more biographies of your own family, but then you're also intrigued to read them about others. And then when you start to write, like we read all your biography and obviously Mitzi's and, and a lot of other people. And it, it really, it is a delicious part of life because you find out, you, like what Crystal just said, there's some lineage to the DNA. I mean, I yeah. her family has, both our families have a lot of leadership in its history. And I, I won't take you there right this second, but and also some eclectic wisdom because we did some stuff or they did some stuff. Sorry, I should say yeah. backwards. And as have you, I can see the finish line on, uh, on the timer. And uh, what I'd like to do uh, before parting is just to go through all the things that stop us from asking. Can you let everybody know what they are and how to run through them? Sure. I mean, um, doubt, uncertainty, fear. I mean, flat out sheer terror, excuses. Sometimes we just make excuses for going to the next level or doing the next thing. Right. So saying I can't do that because rather than why can't I do that? Exactly. If you're blind and this guy can become one of the best writers and movie makers in the world, tell me what your excuse is again. And we cover a lot of those kind of stories. And then with your permission, can I do one big ask to your audience? Yeah. Okay, so we've written this great book called Ask, The Bridge from Your Dream to Your Destiny. We think it's going to be the most transformative book of all times, and hopefully it'll catch up to the, the most sold single book of all time is The Alchemist by a guy from Brazil. But our ask is that if you get one of these books before April 27th, at Amazon.com, because our publisher said to get in the algorithms, you got to pre-sell 20,000 copies, and we're busy after it with this and a lot of other things. And if they buy one and go to reception of MarkVictorHanson.com and send us a note to that, we're going to give them an exclusive private invitation to Mark and Crystal. Now, if they really get crazy and they've got an audience or friendship or, you know, they're part of a charity that they get or a student, you know, like we got a university buying them for every graduating student right now. You know, one of the many universities that gave me an honorary doctorate. So we're really thankful if they buy a hundred or more and go to reception at markvictorhanson.com and, and send us a receipt from Amazon or from Bulk Books, because you get them cheaper at Bulk Books, we are going to have a one day ask Crystal Mark anything they could possibly want. And at night, we're going to finish with a party at our house, a private dinner celebrating those people who are silly enough or kind enough or wise enough to ask for a, to buy a hundred books. You know, that is just amazing salesmanship. <laughs> amazing to some of the people that are doing it. It just, not only universities, but charities and people with big companies. Is, yeah, I could do that for you. If you hadn't asked, I wouldn't have done it. That's the whole point of our whole conversation. If you don't ask, they can't say yes or no. Wow. There you go. As a little kid, I learned no. I was dyslexic, so I thought no said on, so I just kept going onward. <laughs> <laughs> oh man we need to help people get their asking gear yeah that's good that's a nice closer there you had a great couple of great lines there at the end let me just say thank you so much and and you know that piece at the end I, i'm just listening and i'm saying to myself 
could I do that? Could I sell like that? Because, you know, I've never, first off, starting as a journalist, you're kind of taught not to sell yourself. But now that I'm in a position to do so, I, I continually have to push. But what I was thinking while you were going through that, Mark, was, man, this was so natural to you. And if you didn't put that out there, nobody could buy 100 books. That's right. And we've had, I got to say, a lot of people, but we will have 100 between now and April 28th. I mean, well, and I wanted to say, Cal, what you're talking about yourself is that you, you one of the roadblocks we talk about is being stuck in a pattern. And because you didn't ask, you weren't trained to ask. It was you, you developed a pattern of not asking. And that is one of the reasons that's one of the seven roadblocks that people don't ask. You have so many skills and talents. I mean, you should be able to ask for anything, right? But you're, you've kind of developed a pattern. And so I'm asking you to change it and decide you're me for a short time until you got it natural to your pattern. <laughs> and then you decide to sell more of your books, more of your podcasts, more of your everything. And, you know, who knows what the three of us can get into as trouble uh, with each other and Mitzi. <laughs> well, I'm all game and I've thrown out that roadblock. So just let me say thank you, and let's see where this goes. It sounds like it's going onward. That about wraps it up. I want to thank Tim Ferriss, as usual, for nudging me to start this podcast. The end of this conversation taught me a huge lesson because, well, at the very end, you heard Mark make a big ask on his new book. He believes his book and Crystal's book can help a lot of people, and he made a big ask for people to buy it in bulk. Most people are not going to order 100 copies of that book, but maybe one or two people became very curious over the course of our conversation and see the value of spreading the message to people they care about. Maybe a few people out of the thousands and thousands who listen to big questions will make that big order, and if they do, It will only be because Mark made the ask. I hope you all will look into yourselves and ask about the best ways for you to go forward. In light of our present situation, I hope that if you do, you also reach out to people who might be able to assist you on your way. Sitting back and feeling sad or helpless will accomplish nothing. Ask yourself how to get the most out of your moments and go forward from there. See you next week. Cheers.